everybody, it is Derek Price here, coming to you with a special recording of an event that just happened here at uh, Vanderbilt's campus on April 16th. We did a digital panel with a couple of guests called Making a Difference in Gaming, uh, sort of playing on the word difference, thinking about difference in games culture, but also how games are making a difference in the world. It was a really great panel, and we decided that it was too good not to share on the podcast feed, so um, stick around, listen to uh, a bunch of really interesting perspectives on that question. Um, I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. So please sit back, relax, and listen. Okay, well, um, it's just after three. Um, we're going to get started. Welcome to Making a Difference in Gaming, a panel uh, by uh, the Robert Penn Warren Seminar, Taking Play Seriously, a multidisciplinary, a multidisciplinary approach to uh, play in games. My name is Derek Price. And I'm Boomer Trujillo. Yeah. So you want to introduce maybe the, the seminar a little bit? Sure. So this year, basically, the Robert Penn Warren uh, Center for the Humanities has been generous enough to give us some money. And we've used that money to organize lots of seminars to talk about games and play, especially what makes some goods, or some play and games good ethically and politically. And we've looked at those issues from anthropology, sociology, media studies, um, psychology, biology, lots of different disciplines to try and bring sort of the themes together. And we've been lucky enough to have conversations with lots of different people from here in Nashville. Um, so we've had academics working in philosophy, German, English, uh, and pedagogy. But we've also had people from law, the Divinity School, healthcare, and community arts organizations. Um, and last semester, we had Patrick Lemieux and Stephanie Bullock, two schools, there are two scholars from English and media studies, to talk about metagaming with us. So uh, forms of play not necessarily defined by code, commerce, or computation. And then a few weeks ago, we had a scholar from the University of Central Oklahoma, Mark Silcox, um, come and talk with us about the relationship between play, games, and theories of distributive justice. So basically, how should we distribute goods in society in a good way? So it's been a pretty varied seminar, and we thank you all for coming out and joining us in that. Yeah, thanks, Boomer. Um, so today, we are sort of continuing that conversation uh, we've invited three speakers here who are all sort of in their own ways thinking about and writing about and working on games to sort of help us continue that conversation. We've given them a theme for this event, which is, uh, you know, the sort of cute play on words of making a difference in gaming. Um, so with this, we're sort of playing on the multiple meanings of the word difference. Uh, and we're thinking about not only how uh, games culture has negotiated difference in identity and representation, uh, play in the workplace and society at large, but also how games might be sort of making a difference in all sorts of local, national, transnational contexts, and what that difference might even be. That's going to be up to our panelists to let us know. Um, before we get started, I just wanted to quickly introduce uh, our, our speakers. I'm going to introduce all of them right now. So I start, I'm going to introduce them all. They'll each have a short talk, and then we'll have a Q&A session at the end after they're all finished. So first up, we have... Uh, Bill Harms, here he is, he's on screen now. Um, so uh, Bill Harms will be the first, and he's a professional comics and video games writer. He's currently working at Hangar 13. Uh, it's a 2K game studio, and he's working there as a narrative director. Um, in his role at Hangar 13, he was the lead writer for Mafia 3, which came out in uh, 2016. And he's also previously worked on Infamous and Infamous 2. If you're familiar with those video games, those names will ring a bell. And in comics, he's also... 
Uh, Comicsy's also worked on uh, the acclaimed vampire series Impaler. I'm not super familiar with it, but I should check it out, I guess. Um, and also a graphic novel called 39 Minutes, one called Shotgun Wedding, and he's also written uh, written comics featuring Captain America and Thor, uh, the Avengers, and Wolverine, among others. So that's Bill. So he'll be first. Followed by that will be uh, Dante Douglas. Here's Dante. Um, so he'll be our second present, uh, presenter. He's a games writer, journalist, critic, and he's a poet as well. Um, his bio says so. so. Um, he's published at all sorts of outlets, uh, Pace Magazine, Zam, Polygon, Waypoint. Um, he's been a really strong voice in James uh, games criticism and journalism for, for years now, and I think his work really stands out uh, because it's sort of pushing beyond the boundaries of the sort of product review meets enthusiast press style of writing and really encourages us to think critically about the things we enjoy and make connections to uh, games in the sort of socioeconomic contexts where they're sort of produced and when they circulate. Uh, he has a very long list of publications, so I'll just highlight a few of his recent pieces, um, one called Game, Games Critics Need to Review Games Holistically, and in this piece he sort of challenges the tendency to separate story from gameplay uh, in a lot of games writing. Um, another one is called Game Developers Need a Union, um, and he's sort of contextualizing the growing movement in games industry to organize and making the case for why workers need unions. And then, of course, uh, he's got another article that came up fairly recently called Steam Has Failed at Curation and Moderation, where he sort of argues that Valve's approach to games curation, which really relies on user labor uh, to do a lot of the curatorial work, uh, has created somewhat of a hostile environment or tough environment for new developers. So that's Dante Douglas. Um, and then our final presenter for the day will be Dr. Adrian Shaw. Um, Dr. Adrian Shaw is the assistant professor uh, at Temple University's Department of Media Studies and Production. Um, uh, and her work explores areas, what, I, what I'd like to say, where the boundary of the magic circle of play sort of gets blurry. That is places where sort of politics and identity and sociality become interwoven with questions of media representation and play. Um, she's the author of Gaming at the Edge, Sexuality and Gender at the Margins of Gamer Culture, a book which explores, and I'm just quoting here, the politics of representation of marginalized groups, ethnographic and qualitative media audience research, and cultural studies approaches to video games. Um, she also recently uh, co-edited a, uh, a volume in 2017 called Queer Game Studies with Dr. Bonnie Ruberg. It's a book featuring uh, essays by game designers, journalists, and academics. For, uh, some of those were from the first Queerness and Games Conference in 2013. And uh, there's a, a long list of publications that she has as well that are worth exploring, but she also is the founder of the LGBTQ Game Archive. So that's Dr. Adrian Shaw. So with that, I'm going to shut up and, and let our, our first uh, panelist start speaking. Uh, please welcome Bill Harms. Everybody, can you hear me okay? Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Um, sorry, my, my, uh, I'm coming down with a cold, so my voice isn't super great today. Um, so yeah, so as, uh, as Derek said, I currently work at Hangar 13. Um, as lead writer on Mafia 3. And the interesting thing about this topic for me is I thought what I would do is provide a kind of behind the scenes look in terms of active game development and how we approach certain topics on Mafia 3. Um, so although Mafia 3 isn't a game about racism because of who Lincoln Clay is, um, he's an African-American man. It's set in 1968 in New Bordeaux, which is our version of New Orleans. Um, we knew that we had to include race as part of the game because it not only informs how Lincoln views the world, 
But as a player moving through the game space, it also informs how the game world views the player and um, by extension, Lincoln Clay. So having said that, one of the things that you have to really uh, keep in mind and manage with AAA game development, which is what Mafia 3 is, it's a, you know, a big budget title. Um, it's, you know, the hope is that we sell millions of copies. It takes a lot of people to make it. It's years and years in development. Um, but kind of overriding everything as a part of that development process is the player experience of playing the game and not forgetting that at the end of the day, it is a game and it should be fun. Um, so over the course of Mafia 3, which, you know, I don't know how familiar you all are with the game, but it deals with some very, very sensitive subject matter, um, race, um, gender identity. One of the characters comes out to Lincoln. Um, her name's Nikki Burke. And she comes out as a lesbian if you complete all of her side quests. Um, we have a subplot in the game that involves um, two Vietnam, African-American Vietnam vets whose car breaks down. They go to a white man's house to ask for help, and he shoots and kills them. Um, so we have a lot of these kind of elements over the course of the game, and they play out in active gameplay, which is a mission that the player embarks on. But they also take place in kind of secondary narrative content. In the case of the two, the two men who were killed, that actually plays out over the radio and also in the form of a kind of uh, secondary mission that you go after the judge who's presiding over the case. That said, all of that stuff had to go through the prism of we're still making a game and the game needs to be fun to play. Um, and because of that, we tried a lot of different things. And once they were in the game, we would test it internally. Um, 2K Publishing would test it. We also focus tested a lot of things. And there's a couple specific examples that I'll talk about where we actually decided to move away from what we were originally planning to do. And in both cases, I think the game made, it made the game experience better, um, but it also kind of made our point better as well. Um, so there's, there's two examples that I'll talk about really briefly. Um, the first one is racist language. So as a black man in the American South in 1968, Lincoln is subject to a lot of racism. Um, some of this is kind of offhanded comments by pedestrians as you walk past them in the world. Some of it, it comes from um, kind of, I don't know, I sorry, I'm lost for the word, um, kind of subconscious racism in a way, P uh, body language of people. There's one cinematic where he goes to a whites only country club and a woman walks past him and she clutches her purse as he walks by. As a character, she probably did that subconsciously, but it's something that Lincoln notices. Um, so we, we have this intersection of all these things, but what we found is based on focus testing, specifically focus testing by African-American gamers, is that a lot, of the, a lot of the racist language in the game just kind of became noise. And it was really um, working as a detriment to the gameplay experience of playing the game. So what we did is we, we kind of dug into that a little bit uh, actually more than a little bit, dug into that a lot. And eventually what we kind of sussed out is, is even though that language as presented in the game is probably, unfortunately, more historically accurate than what ends up being in the game, it was making for a really bad, bad experience. So the thing we really settled on with this is that all that language needed to have a context behind it. So if it was just random racist language, it, it, it was really interruptive to the gameplay experience and it, was, um, it wasn't being perceived or, or accepted the way that we, that we wanted it to be, because obviously we took this all very seriously. So we actually took a lot of that language out. Um, 
or we rewrote it and we recorded it so that it was it had the necessary context for it. Um, behind the scenes, in terms of the system that actually managed that language, we would flag it in our tool. And once a line like that would play, it would then go on a timer. So there's usually about a, I think it was seven to 10 minute cooldown. <clears throat> so once you heard a line like that, another one wouldn't play for 10 minutes. Um, in other cases, we just removed it completely um, because it was unwarranted. Um, the second example I'll give you is, uh, was inspired by some of the research that we did. Um, we did a lot of research um, in terms of the game. And that was everything from reading accounts and interviews uh, from people from the, from, the, from the 60s, their experiences, to watching documentaries like Take This Hammer, um, to there's a documentary called um, The Spies of Mississippi. It's about how state governments would try to undermine the civil rights movement, to interviews. Um, actually, once we, we, we had cast the game, we, have a very, we had a pretty large African-American cast. We would ask, ask them about their experiences, and that would also inform some of the gameplay and narrative decisions that we made. Um, one of the biggest, uh, it wasn't the only one, but one of the, the highest level kind of inspirations for us is Alex Haley, the author of Roots, interviewed um, Jim Brown for Playboy magazine in 1968. Um, for those of you who don't know who Jim Brown is, I'm a Cleveland Browns fan, so to me, he's the greatest football player of all time. Uh, but he was a running back for the Browns, and then he went on to become an actor and then later an activist. And in the interview, he talks about um, driving through the South with a couple of his friends, and the police pulled them over because their car, quote, threw dust on white people. And it wasn't a normal, it wasn't like, hey, pull over, show me your license. It was a cop pulled in front of them, got out of his car, had his service weapon out, and was aiming it at them. So this is some, this, 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 um, Based off of that and other research that we did, it started a conversation about how, how do we replicate that in the game? So we had this idea for a really long time. It lasted for months um, before we actually cut it. But the idea was is at the very beginning of the game, Lincoln has just returned from Vietnam and he's picked up at the train station by essentially his adopted brother, Ellis. And they're driving to Sammy's house, which is um, Ellis's biological father and Lincoln's kind of adopted father. And along the way, what we wanted to have happen is to have the, the police pull them over and see if we could replicate in gameplay that experience that Jim Brown and countless other people have experienced. Um, the problem with it is it didn't work. So it didn't work in, in terms of gameplay uh, because we what, we what we first tried to do is, well, how does this play out? And you start asking your questions. What, what choice does the player have in this situation? And as you're making a game, that's the, that's, that always has to be at the forefront, is how does the player experience this gameplay moment? So then we were like, well, maybe Lincoln can bribe the police officer. Uh, maybe him and Ellis can remind the police officer that they work for Sammy Robinson, who's a big gangster in the city, and reports to Sal Marcano, who's the head of the time off in the city. Maybe it could end in violence with, with Lincoln confronting the police officer and attacking him, and then that escalates. Um, the problem is, is, is in the game industry, there's a thing called edge cases. So there's, these are things, basically it's unintended consequences of, of, a, of a game design decision. So off of that, you start asking, well, what if we do have Lincoln attack the cop? Can he be arrested? Can he go to jail? What if Ellis dies? What if Lincoln dies? Is having the player quote unquote fail via, you know, being killed by a police officer, a few minutes into the game, a good play experience. 
Um, and the answer to that was no, it wasn't, it wasn't fun. So then we tried to explore it as a cinematic. Um, the cinematic, I think, would have been, would have been really good and, and, you know, it, and express what we wanted to do. But then we're, you're not playing that, you're not, you know, it's a passive experience. You're watching that, you're not participating in it. So what we decided to do is actually not do that at all. However, the process of exploring that um, gave us other ideas about how to kind of capture that same um, situation and other aspects of the game. So even though we cut the pullover, it did directly inspire another system in the game, which is the police dispatcher and the, re the rate at which police respond to crimes committed by the player in the city. So if you, let's say you commit a crime in Delray Hollow, which is pr uh, predominantly African-American community within the city, that's where Lincoln's from. The, the VO from the police dispatcher is very apathetic. She basically says, hey, this thing happened. You know, there's a report of a guy stealing a car. If anyone has time or inspiration, you can head down there and see what happens. <laughs> if you do the same thing in Frisco Fields, which is an affluent white area of the city, it's very, very different. The, the police dispatcher identifies you more in racial terms. She says that all units need to respond immediately. And then via the under, kind of under the hood, what we do is we actually accelerate the rate at which the police spawn into the game. So in the case of Delray Hollow, let's say you steal a car and you take off. Maybe you can get away before the cop even shows up. In Frisco Fields, within about 10 seconds, there's probably four to five police cars there, and it's, a, it's much more difficult to get out of that situation. Um, so by doing this, we're able to, in video game terms, kind of capture some of that same sense that we wanted to capture with the police pullover. Um, but we also reduce the player friction so that and by that I mean what it by by that what I mean is the um, the notion of committing a crime and get a police response is very very standard in a well known open world game mechanic. Pretty much every open world game has this. So by taking that well known mechanic and kind of putting a spin on it, the player intuitively who who plays a lot of open world games understands what's happening, and and then they were able to you know to move on from that. Um, so, like I said, we were able to accomplish most of what we wanted, but in a way that kept the experience a, consistent with the genre, uh, but also involved more player choice because maybe you don't steal the car, maybe you do. It's again, it's uh, it's up to the uh, to the player and giving them the choice and how all that unfolds, and it remained fun. Um, how am I doing on time? Uh, good, maybe a minute or two if you wanted to wrap it up. Or oh yeah, so so that was basically it. I mean, there was there's other examples. Um, of, of this across the game. Like I said, there's, there's the radio program, which is, um, sorry, there's the news programs in the game, which I mentioned involving the, uh, the murder of the two men. We also kind of have dueling radio programs, one by a black militant called The Voice, who basically tries to tie, um, in a very MLK kind of way, tie poverty across um, ethnic lines and say, you know, poor white people, he's trying to rally them to, to, the, to his cause as well by saying we have common cause in some areas. Um, but at the same time, you, when you kill, a you kill a character in the name in the game called Remy Duvall, who's essentially the head of our version of the Klan. And that's the voice's last radio program. And he, he celebrates this. He says, this is a great moment for the city. So he kind of vacillates between those two extremes. The other radio program is by Remy Duvall, and it's that very genteel Southern 
um, you know, subliminal racism with a lot of coded language and things like that. And these play out and they're paced uh, based on gameplay events. So as you progress through the game, these unlock, um, they're synchronized to unlock as you play through the game. So they're commenting on things that the player has either done or potentially will do. So it creates this entire cohesive experience around that. That's great. Um, thank you, Bill. Sure. Okay, um, we'll have questions for everyone all at the end, but I want to move next to Dante Douglas. You're Hello. Uh, I assume you can hear me okay. Yes. All right, cool. Uh, first, I just want to say thanks to Derek for that uh, glowing introduction for all of us, um, and as well, thanks to everyone else on this panel. Uh, that was really fascinating, Bill. Um, uh, so, um, hi. My name's Dante Douglas. Uh, you can find me on Twitter as at VideoDante. Uh, I'm a writer and I'm a developer. Um, I've been working in or around video games for about five years now in some sort of professional capacity. Um, I've written for a lot of different websites. Uh, I'm a freelancer, so that means my name tends to get around. Um, hang on, I'm just moving this so I can actually see y'all better while I talk. Um, okay. Um, I'm a writer and developer. I've been working in or around video games for about five years now in some sort of professional capacity. Uh, I've written for a lot of different websites. I'm a freelancer, so that means my name tends to get around. Uh, you might know me from writing a lot of things at Paste Magazine's Games Vertical. Uh, I have about an article a week that goes up there. Uh, I've also written for Waypoint, uh, Polygon, Sam.com, uh, a lot of other places. Um, so I've been, like I said, uh, circling games for about five years now. I, sorry if, uh, I'm basically just giving you a big old personal history of me. So, um, I hope that's really interesting to y'all. Um, uh, I've been circling games for about five years. Uh, I went to the university of Oregon. Um, and during my time there, I was the co-president of a student group on campus called think play. Uh, we did stuff kind of like this, actually, we had a lot of, uh, like game speakers. We had some Skype in, we ran a few like conferences with local game developers and thinkers and that sort of thing. Um, uh, and we also just had like fun events. We hosted game jams. We did stuff like that. Um, so it's really, it's actually kind of nice to be kind of back in the academic side of things. <laughs> I haven't done that in a while. Um, I studied sociology at the university. I graduated in June 2016 with a major in sociology and a minor in women's and gender studies. Um, games were always in the background of my university experience, both through ThinkPlay and through the local games communities that I was kind of enmeshing myself within at the time. Um, it was around that time that I started a games writing outlet with a friend and colleague, Amir uh, Alasser, that we called Deorbital. Uh, the concept was pretty simple. We ran an article about every two weeks uh, from an underrepresented voice in games culture, uh, or that was the idea. Um, it only ran for about three months until our funding ran out, but I'm still pretty immensely proud of what we were able to put up there. Uh, and if you go over to deorbital.media, like it's, it's all still up there. Um, deorbital was really me and Amr's kind of uh, attempt to get more um, more underrepresented views into games writing specifically. So we were looking for writing from, from writers of color. We were looking from queer writers. We were looking for young writers, the type of people who generally can't just get a freelance spot at like Kotaku or whatever. Um, no hate to Kotaku. Uh, but, but that was where a lot of my early communication with games and games writing came from. Uh, that and getting a leg up to write for Pace Magazine from uh, a friend of mine, Gita Jackson, who's now a staff, a staff writer at Kotaku. Um, 
But uh, okay, so around that time, 2016 and a few years earlier, I was lucky enough to be in Eugene, Oregon at a time when the local game development community was kind of finding its feet again. Uh, and that, along with the nearby Portland Indie Game Squad or Pig Squad, only a few hours north, meant that I had a vast amount of similarly interested people in relatively close vicinity. Um, I cannot overestimate how important local communities were in helping me find my place in games, whatever that place is or turned out to be. Um, and it's these sort of communities, both in real life and online, through friends and folks interested in similar things, that my overwhelming core of games romanticism comes from. Um, and that's what I'm trying to actually get to here. So uh, at the end of 2017, I wrote a game of the year list, as a lot of people do. Um, and it's currently up on my Medium account. And I just want to read a snippet from the beginning of it, because it relates to something I want to talk about here and to the greater theme of this event overall um, when Derek pitched it to me. Um, so this is from the game of the year list. Uh, I spent most of 2017 coping with 2017. I imagine I'm not the only person reading this who did. Games helped with that, but so did activism, and more than anything else, being with those who I care about and with whom I could commiserate with helped. In dark times, you huddle for warmth. I'm a games romantic. I know this. I've learned to keep it in check, lest I become another games evangelist who says things like, games are the ultimate artistic medium. <laughs> to be a conscientious games romantic, just as in any romance, requires recognizing faults just as you recognize triumphs. This last year, if I could find a theme between all the titles I've chosen to highlight here, in the piece, uh, it's resilience. Survival through the harshest times under social and material pressures. Games about the little homes that we carve out within the wreckage. I don't think games are unique. I think they're important, but I don't think they're unique. Uh, and that's important. Recognizing that games are an art form comes with the added condition that no art form is intrinsically higher or lower than any other. They just are. Uh, so what does that mean for games? It means we're dealing with a young medium. And it's not actually that young. Like, if you really wanted to trace it back, we could be like, games have been around for like eh, 50 years, or like video games specifically. Um, but you have to remember that games, video games have, for the majority of its lifespan, been a medium dictated by and kind of pathed by capitalism, uh, by large companies seeing the possibility of profit and deciding to get a foot in the door. Uh, this isn't how all games are. It's certainly not how the entire games ecosystem is. But to ignore the fact that whatever growth games have had as a medium has come somewhat against the wishes of a number of small of large entities that desire games to be profitable and market driven is ignorant. We walk among malevolent giants. Isn't that a good line? I thought of that one. I was at GDC, uh, the Game Developers Conference in San Francisco earlier this March. Um, if you were paying attention to games news at the time, you might have heard about a rather uh, contentious roundtable uh, put on by the chairperson of the IGDA, which is the International Game Developers Association. Um, the roundtable was centered on the pros and cons of unionization in the games industry. I'm not going to talk about specifics of the roundtable because I wasn't physically in it. I was outside hanging out with the folks handing out pro-union buttons and stickers and stuff. Um, I bring it up because when I talk about games and the difference that games culture has, not just within itself, but in the broader context of the world, what I see is largely disappointing. Um, again, I preface this by saying I'm a games romantic. Uh, I am, or I consider myself to be. But that doesn't mean I'm satisfied with the impact that games are making on the world. 
Most AAA games are politically questionable and full of dubious messages at best about things like imperialism, uh, bootstrap mentalities, state violence, uh, racism. Our largest organization of game developers internationally thinks that unionization is a maybe. <laughs> Crunch and overwork, as well as just straight up labor exploitation, is common to the point of being like brag worthy within the industry. We work too much, we make too little. So when we talk about major video games, it's hard to think of some that really try to make a difference. And for the record, I think Mafia 3 did. So thanks, Bill, for that. Um, but, uh, but I think, but as you talked about, by definition, in order to be a major AAA video game, you have to be shooting for a broad market appeal. That's what publishers want. That's what, uh, that's what they kind of expect, uh, which leads to embracing some harmful ideologies that are considered apolitical, because that's what publishers think will sell, judging by the state of games that hit like E3 stage or something like that. Um, to be clear, I'm not talking about violence. Focusing on interpersonal and violence, interpersonal violence in video games as some sort of boogeyman has long been a tool of a regressive politic. It's not one that I care to endorse. Uh, I think that violence is a tool. The more interesting and meaning laden thing to dissect is who is doing violence and how and to whom. So when I say uh, there are harmful ideologies in games, I mean, mostly things like flattening social violences of racism or classism or sexism or what have you into like an equal sides debate. Or another example would be uh, endorsing imperialist violence, often with the stated report, the stated support of the American military, like we see with Call of Duty, um, or even more benign endorsements like an overwhelming individualism in what constitutes revolutionary action. Games have a lot of heroic warriors they don't really have nearly as many caregivers, uh, architects, gardeners, uh, all of which are literally or metaphorically necessary to enact change on a broad scale. Um, but while I'm disappointed with a lot of games, uh, not all games, but uh, a lot of games in the AAA space, I don't think the medium is doomed. I think games, especially now with the creation tools for games being so broadly available and the paths to creating a good game uh, that is a good piece of art being so much easier to traverse than even five years ago, let alone 10 years ago, we're in a glut of brilliant games. And most of them you've never heard of, and I've never heard of them because there's way too many of them. Um, and so that's where, that's where I find hope, uh, not just in the, the, the few AAA games or mass market games that espouse a more critical stance on the real world evils that we all deal with, but those that allow for a sense of refuge. Uh, one of my favorite games of the past few years was Stardew Valley, because I think in many ways it was just a game that kept me going. Uh, after the 2016 election, Night in the Woods was that game for me. Um, I could name more, like dozens more at least. Um, games that gave me a sense of renewed hope or a sense of renewal. Uh, so that too is a difference that games have from the rest of the world, artistically and socially. I mentioned that I don't think games are unique, but I do think that games, due to their nature as inherently interactive objects uh, and objects with a social coding of needing to be uh, played with means that they have a unique position in society to be a gateway towards stories in a way that is unique, just as a movie is distinct from a song or a poem from a novel. Um, games have an ability to merge story and mechanic and tone and atmosphere uh, that is often hard to replicate. If you've ever seen a movie based on a video game, you know that this is pretty immediately apparent. Uh, a good game movie is only ever an adaptation because it has to be. There's something in the game that is unique. It can't, you can't just translate it one-to-one. -one. Um, 
So uh, even if the form itself of a video game borrows from many different aspects from different art forms, uh, games are that, precisely. They're borrowed. Uh, they're concocted of many different art forms blended together. That's why I'm a romantic about them, because that's the cool part. A game can be so many different things, and games can be so different. The very concept of grouping all games together becomes harder uh, as games start pushing the boundary of boundaries of like what constitutes a game on a screen. Um, I know some people who think that the term game itself is limiting, and I understand that viewpoint. Like, how are you going to compare uh, Wolfenstein to Gorogoa? Uh, how can you even draw any similarities between Kirby All-Stars and Cluster Truck, right? Like, we're dealing with such a vast spread of mechanics and visuals and story and narrative between games that the concept of a homogenous descriptor almost falls apart at the definition. Uh, but there is one thing that ties them together, and it's that we call them all video games. And I kind of like that. It's, uh, it's like a rallying cry. Uh, we're dealing with, like I said, a young form that is constantly struggling to branch out from its money benefactors. Uh, we deserve a couple clunky years. Uh, and I'm hopeful. Of course I am. I'm an eternal optimist, um, but also on a more material level, I think that many of the things I mentioned before, the ways that game creation are, are being more democratized, uh, that workers' movements are finally like really being talked about, um, and new voices are showing up in critical spheres, means that I think we're seeing change happen in real time. Uh, it's not always change that vibes with a sustainable model, but it's change. Um, I've talked a lot in articles about how I feel about the term indie-pocalypse, although now that I think about it, I don't think I've ever used the word indie-pocalypse, which is probably good. Uh, but it's just, it, if you're not familiar with that idea, uh, the indie-pocalypse is this idea that indie games have been slowly on the decline of like sales and profitability since some point. Like depending on who you talk to, they'll probably say like the Xbox Live Arcade era of like 2006 or whatever, uh, or they'll talk about the first days of like indie games showing up on Steam, right? But uh, the exact date really isn't that important, but the concept is, which is that we're living in a time period where games don't sell as much. Uh, objectively, that's sort of correct. Uh, while games, the broad market of games, like the really big market, is growing from year to year. Uh, individual games, by and large, are selling less. Partially, that's just numbers, uh, but it's also indicative of another change, which is that games are reaching a saturation point where they aren't all profitable. Uh, some of them are going to lose money. I don't think that's part. I don't think that's a problem with games or the market. Honestly, I think it's a greater tapestry, uh, which is kind of based on the idea that our society doesn't value the creation of art. Um, that's true whether it's games or movies or music. Uh, we don't think as a society that artists, or for that, matter, for that matter, people in general, are deserving of basic staples unless they work for it. And this is where I get very leftist and very angry. <laughs> and I say that if we didn't have to worry about not having a home or not having food or not having healthcare, then the fact that games are making less money per game would not be nearly as big of a heartbreaking roadblock as it currently is. That's the indie-pocalypse, if we want to get real about it. It's that suddenly we're dealing with a fact where this art form is very saturated, but that also means that people aren't going to be getting paid as much. Um, so a couple of years back, I was at a poetry workshop at a VCU in Richmond, Virginia, and one of the facilitators said something that I'll never forget, which is that uh, poetry can tear you apart, but it can't put you back together. 
With respect to the facilitator, I think this is true of most any art. Um, games, like anything else, can tear you apart, but they can't put you back together. Uh, they can help in discovering things about yourself. They can take you through tough times, uh, but neither the creation of them nor the experience of consuming them is a substitute for therapy. It's not going to be activism. But games can offer things. They can offer visions, uh, conceptualizations. The mechanical nature of games means that sometimes the act of play becomes in itself an act of self-discovery. I've brought lessons from games written with a purpose to other parts of my life, uh, to activism, to uh, games communities. Um, so if we want to talk about games and their impact, I am adamant that we cannot forget their faults, um, but we can't either forget their triumphs. Uh, as a critic, I want to illuminate both. As a creator, I want to work to create pieces that build on what has come before and what we can envision as creators. Even if that's just as simple as a cool new platformer mechanic or something more grand like a game that builds a tone that people can escape to or a game that challenges colonialism or something like that. Um, games can do all of that uh, and more, in my opinion, and that's what makes them really fascinating. Uh, even the ones I don't like because they're always transmitting a message of some sort, purposefully or not. Chances are they're going to be doing that for a long time. But it's on us as an audience of players and writers and critics to not just support a future of games, but to criticize it, to work against its harmful tendencies. And most of all, to support materially and vocally the creators and the work that we find good and just and honest. And that's my talk. <laughs> um, so, uh, thank you so much, John. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Derek. Thank you, Boomer. Uh, thanks to everyone else on this panel. Um, yeah. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> good, good luck. Okay. Um, and here we have Dr. Adrian Shaw. All right. Um, you can hear me, right? Absolutely. Awesome. Um, well, this works out perfectly because uh, Bill and Dante touched on a lot of things that I planned on talking about, too. So it all fit together magically without planning. Um, so based on uh, the sort of provocations that Derek sent me, I sort of thought of this talk in terms of the question, has critical game scholarship really made a difference? Um, and more specifically, sort of based on questions that I've gotten from various people who are or are not in game studies, wondering whether or not like I've made a difference. Because I've been doing video games research for over 13 years now, quickly approaching 15, um, feeling like I'm writing a lot of the same things over and over again. Um, but I, in 2017, had a piece published in Cinefanos, which is a, a cinema and media studies journal out of Montreal, um, where I talk about the sort of impact of critical game scholarship in terms of questions of erosion as a political goal, rather than, rather than necessarily saying that evolution games will just come in time or that what is needed is direct action now, but how can we imagine the slow changes as a political goal, both for feminist game studies, queer game studies, um, critical game studies writ large. And I'll read a, a sort of section from the end of that piece um, reflecting on how I as a researcher envision my relationship to convincing the game industry to be, to be better. And I wrote, how much has the game industry cared about what academics have to say? Sure, we have seen changes in representation in games. We have seen changes to the structure of the industry. We have seen some changes to how the audience is envisioned. But those changes have been glacially slow if we consider how long people have been making the case for them. And whatever changes we have seen, there's still a long way to go. 
At my most optimistic, I assume that if I keep putting my case out there, eventually it will sink in, and someday, maybe, more people will make similar arguments, and at some point, all of those arguments together will influence some game designers to approach their job differently. I don't think aiming for erosion is the same as giving up, though. Change takes time, which doesn't mean we need to be patient, but that we need to keep working. And for this panel, um, I thought it would be interesting to sort of go back and see what's changed in games in relation to my past projects, given how long I've been doing this. Um, so in the work I did in mid to early 2000s, a lot of my work leading up to um, and including my first book was based on audience research with people who play a variety of kinds of games and in, who in some way were on the margins of mainstream gamer culture. And a common theme in that work was sort of a relative ambivalence around the importance of representation, at least as it's commonly understood in media studies. And a lot of that stemmed from the assumption that games as an industry couldn't be expected to do any better. Most of the people I, I interviewed had given up on the game industry being able to do good representation. Um, but also, for many of them, the experience of playing game changed how and when representation mattered. So their feeling like they needed to demand it sort of was superseded by the fact that they could enjoy it despite representational problems. I argued in my book um, and in a lot of the work before and that came after it um, that that sort of relative lack of importance was actually a really good reason for more diversity in games. That is, if it doesn't make a difference to a game, then the homogeneity of playable characters is not necessary for marketing as the comic logic assumed. Um, what's different now, though, and that, came, that book, the book came out in 2014, but a lot of that research was based on prior to 2013. Um, and I think what's the biggest difference now is that there's a much bigger critical mass of people who feel like they can demand things of games, and a much wider variety of audiences who feel the right to demand things from games. Um, since 2014, for example, I think Tanya DePas's I Need Diverse Games has really helped foster that critical mass of gamers who feel empowered to demand more from games. But also that's true within the industry and journalism as well. I think Dante spoke a bit to this, um, the sort of emerging of more and more diverse voices, both in game making as well as game criticism, has, has dramatically changed just in the last five years. Um, in my early work, I also did a lot of projects where I interviewed people in the game industry about in issues of representation, um, much of which demonstrated that game industries follow that the game industry follows a lot of the same logics as other media industries: who the expected and most marketable audience is, what decision makers think is worth fighting for, what the experience of the text is. Was, as Bill mentioned, there is something about what makes a game good versus what makes a TV show good that leads people to make specific decisions in design. Um, what the real or expected backlash might be for uh, different types of representation, internal forms of censorship, uh, like rating systems, the structure of the industry, and in projects ranging from uh, the US to the Middle East to Finland to India, it was completely unsurprising, perhaps, that the demands of capitalism shape what game companies do, right? That this is a commercial media industry in, in many respects. Um, in my 2009 Putting the Gay in Game piece, I argued that the expansion of indie game development would, as it had in all other media industries, change the amount and quality of LGBTQ game content. Um, and I guess what's different now is that that happened. So I never try to predict things in academic work, but I feel very strongly that I got a prediction in it in, in 2009 and it turned out to be right. So I'm going to take credit for being right about something that was obvious. Uh, <laughs> The sort of increase of game making tools and distribution platforms led to an explosion of games representing a diversity of viewpoints, especially with a sort of 
tipping point around 2012, but it definitely started before then. Um, communication scholar Catherine Sender has what she calls this concentric circle model of media production, where you have the peripheries, amateur, unfunded media makers, then the margins are sort of the precarious, semi-flexible workers who might have some funding or like sort of uh, imagine the makers of Gone Home who are sort of making an indie, indie studio but work in the mainstream industry. And then the center is the well-funded mainstream industries. And she argues historically that what we see is sort of more progressive industry from the periphery always ends up working its way into the media center, right? People can be progressive and challenging and cutting edge on the, on the edges where they're not making money anyway. Um, and that once that work is out there, it can in turn influence what happens in the media center. And I think we've seen something similar happen with games. That doesn't always mean that all the people on the periphery end up getting paid or end up making it into the mainstream industry, and that's problematic. But I do think that the the push that the sort of push pull between mainstream and, and indie and uh, sort of independent media making is is something that we should pay more attention to. Um, but as Amarjean Christian explores in his recent book, Open TV, there's a limitation built into indie media production scenes. How much people are willing to pay every single person who makes a web series that they like, every single person who makes a video game that they like, every single writer who they like, that we, there is a tipping point in which you can no longer draw on communities to support all the work that's being made, um, as Dante was also pointing out too. Uh, more recently, I've focused a lot of my work on how we can critique the representational choices made in games by thinking about game making and playing experiences more holistically. So looking at, in one of my pieces, looking at the disjuncture between the plot lines of uh, different plot lines in Assassin's Creed 3 in terms, not in terms of realism or historical accuracy, but by showing how those decisions reflected an expected audience. Um, Recently, I was playing Assassin's Creed Origin, and I took the discovery to it, and I was actually really pleasantly surprised by the upfrontness with which the tour explains design decisions made in consultation with historians. One stop says, for example, that education in Alexandria was largely segregated by sex, but they chose to represent boys and girls together because, quote, inclusive play experience seemed more important than accurately representing historical sexism. I have never, uh, as somebody who's been writing about that for years, I've never felt more heard, <laughs> even though I know nobody actually read what I was talking about. Um, but it felt like it had somehow worked its way in there. Like I put it out enough that somehow that point got into somebody's head um, in that sort of universal think way that if you say something, somehow it'll reach it into the collective unconscious. Uh, similarly, working on my major current project, the LGBTQ Game Archive, uh, two series with the most LGBTQ content thus far were Grand Theft Auto and Leisure Suit Larry. And in both cases, they're done for humor, not always as negatively as people assume when I mention them, um, but I think it's more important that they integrate queer people throughout the games. Queerness is uh, literally just taken for granted part of the world they're in. And this is contrasted sharply with games that have arguably sort of more positive, better representation, um, but which represent LGBTQ people in largely straight cis worlds. They're the one person like them in the entire game universe. Um, and again, recently playing through Batman Arkham Knight, waiting on a skyscraper about to pounce on one of Riddler's henchmen, I heard two male thugs in the distance over the radio discussing their respective partners, and one um, was a man in a relationship with a man. This was not relevant to the plot, it was just something that you happened over here if you were in that spot and happened to be paying attention to what the background radio was saying. 
And it's those moments, those little individual small choices of representation that I don't think we've paid much attention to in terms of providing a possibility for difference being represented as just part of this game space, right? For those of you who are familiar with Skyrim, if we could think, if there was a, a similar uh, guy who got shot in the knee with an arrow, just walking through the game worlds, expressing that queerness exists and racial difference <laughs> exists, right? That that could be just as much as part of the game world as people um, saying things that we then make memes about. Um, and then finally, teaching games in a media studies program, I often tell my students that games are just like other media, even if games are very different from other media. A lot of game studies is focused on the differences, on what makes games special and unique, and that comes from historical needs to sort of defend games as an object of study and to defend game studies as its own independent field. Um, but I think, especially having come out of a communication and interdisciplinary training, I think the things that are not that different in games are also a really important site for in intervention and inquiry. So in my current research project, um, interviewing transgender men and transmasculine folks who work in the game industry, one of the things that became clear is that the employment issues that game scholars have largely only studied through the lens of gender inequity are part of larger labor problems much like accommodations for people with disabilities, like curb cuts and elevators make things easy for everyone. Um, in the current project, we're trying to think through what moving forward it would mean if we look, took a coalitional politics approach to making games, working in games better, writ large, for everyone. And this is sort of related to Dante's discussion of unionizing, but also across media industries, um, but also, and across our industries, right? There are a lot of overlaps with the problems in the game industry and media industries writ large as there are within academia in terms of precarious labor, in terms of relying on people who have short-term contracts, in terms of expectations of working hours that extend far past what a normal working day might be. And I think that we've often, academics who study labor especially, often think of our labor as distinctly separate from the labor of the media industries we're studying, but I think there's some room for overlap and perhaps coalition building that could be done to make all of working lives better moving forward. So, thanks. Thank you so much, Adrian. That was great. Um, so, we're gonna open it up here for Q&A in a second, and I had another microphone, so you'll just have to speak up loudly. This, this is the only one we've got. Um, as I was listening to all of your talks, I was struck by this sort of tension that's pervading all of your work, even though you're doing, you know, ostensibly quite similar things, but in some ways very different in different roles. Um, there's this sort of, there's this, there's this attempt to find like the right balance between the sort of duty to be critical or to adhere to history um, and, and all of the political things associated with doing those things. And also like, acknowledging that the reason, a lot of the reason why we play games is because we enjoy them, because we take pleasure in them. Um, and sort of trying to find a way to bring those two together. I, 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 don't know, I don't know if that makes you think anything, but I'd love to hear any of your thoughts about like finding that, that right balance between the two, or if there's even a different kind of approach to games that you might, might think is appropriate. Anyone feel free to get us started, if that gets anyone thinking. I can I can say a thing about that. Um, I mean, for me, and you mentioned the name of this article that I wrote, but like talking about games holistically, I think that's for me that's what it comes down to. I think there's a very there's a tendency to view games as um, 
solely objects of play. And I don't think that's necessarily wrong, but I think if we can, if we can start talking about games as, as texts, as, as things that have, you know, intrinsic meaning that is given to them by their creators, whether or not they intend that or not, but stuff that can be interpreted. I mean, that's, that's, that's where almost all of, I think my ideology about games kind of stems from is this idea that we, we have to give them a certain amount of respect, you know, um, and that involves criticizing them, but it also means just having fun. <laughs> it's a video game. Like, yeah. Any thoughts from anyone? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that um, I talked about in the first book and that I keep sort of coming back to is this, uh, a lot of the not, want it, not wanting to talk about representation in sort of the critical ways they did when they were discussing other, interview, interview, uh, other media, a lot of my interviewees just, we're getting going to games to escape, right? Like it was a it was the fun thing you could do to not have to think about those things. And for a while, I thought about that something as something sort of peculiar to games. But sort of teaching in media studies, I was I I teach an LGBTQ representation class that uh, is cross listed, so I get students from outside our program. And the number of English majors who like just want to watch TV without thinking and don't understand why we have to unpack them. I'm like, but you're an English major. Like, isn't this all you do? And for them, it was, you know, TV was the break for them. For other people, games are the break for them. And I think that there is a tension between how do we talk about things and take them seriously and also discuss the importance of escapism in them, right? And like that, that. I mean, I, I've sort of written critical pieces on representations of sexuality in games in terms of like romantic options, right? And I have a piece on Fable where I talk about how the sort of, there's a lot of closing down of options and lack of realisticness for, back, for lack of a better term about how relationships are, are represented. But I had an independent study with some students where we were talking about it and it's like, there's also something very satisfyingly not realistic about romance options in games because it makes romance something you can figure out how to win, right? Like we talk about that as super problematic historically in terms of representing like affection as something you can win from people, but also dating's hard. And if you can highlight somebody and figure out what presents to give them so that they'll marry you and then you can buy the extra house, like that's kind of nice, right? <laughs> Like not everything should be super hard and challenging. Um, and I mean, like that sort of revelation sort of, I don't know, I guess it sort of changed the way I thought about where the problem lies. And I think for, for me, representation isn't a problem in any given game text. It's a problem with the, the big picture of what games do over and over and over again, right? It's, it's not, and it's not just games, it's media. It's all of media representing the same things the same ways over and over again. And I think it's possible to critique them without say without taking the fun out of them. Um, but I think that it is it is important to keep the the pleasure of it in in focus. Related to that, I also think that we haven't as media studies game scholars in general. I don't think we've explored enough um, how much media we watch or games we play, even when we don't like them. Like we get through them. Yeah. Like I I mean, the number of games that I finished even though I really didn't, wasn't happy anymore, but I finished them. Like, I think we sort of overestimate how much pleasure people have in things, like, yeah. uh, or TV shows that we get through just to get through. Like, that's a, an area for future research, I think. Yeah, for sure. 
Um, I'll just speak really quickly. The um, it is interesting hearing this this the surfacing of conflict might not be the right word, but maybe friction between specifically independent game development and mainstream game development. Because in mainstream game development, you do need to hit a wide swath of audience. Um, a lot of times in, in game development, I've been doing this for almost 14 years. Um, one of my brothers used to work at a rock quarry and he would he was the dynamite guy. There, I, I can't remember the actual technical term for it, but, it was, but <laughs> I just call him the dynamite guy. Um, but it's a very stressful, very dangerous job. And he would go home at night and I would log on to my PlayStation and he'd be playing Call of Duty. And he'd be like, I just want to come home. I just want to have fun. I want, I don't want to think about anything. I'll hang, you know, he has a little, he has a little, little girl. He'll hang out with her, hang out with his family and then not think about it. So I think one of the challenges, if you're working in the AAA game space is how do you accomplish that? But then also try to say something. And I'm not, my ego is not big enough to say, hey, we did that with Mafia 3. But I will say at least we tried. And I think maybe even the attempt of that is moving things in the right direction. Because if you can, if you can marry that with the mainstream game experience, I think you can get a lot of mileage out of that and expose people um, to different stories, different people. I mean, that, that's the thing I loved about, about working on Mafia 3 is it wasn't the traditional Italian mobster story. It was a story that, that normally you wouldn't even associate with the word mafia, which is an African-American man in the American South. Um, so I think, there is, I think there is a way to bring those two things together. And the optimist in me um, says, hopes and thinks that maybe the industry is moving more, when I, by industry I mean AAA game space, not necessarily independent game development, um, which is already there in, in a lot of ways. With, with games like Hellblade, which was probably my favorite game of last year. Um, the end of that game made me cry, I'll just admit it. Um, but, so I, I, think, I think slowly but surely, uh, my hope is, is that the game industry is moving that direction. Yeah. I, I, I pose the question because I, I'm teaching a fairy tales class right now, and some of my students are here, uh, and we were talking about those sort of different modes of engaging with media and how there's you can enjoy there's the critical mode the pleasurable mode but there's also some way that you can sort of even when you realize that something's problematic when you realize that all of the disney movies you grew up with were terrible uh and like sexist and all sorts of bad things but there's still ways to go back to that after criticism and sort of redeem parts of it and still find pleasure and i think all of you talked about instances where people had some sort of practice that they did to sort of get something out of that game regardless um, that's enough for me. I want to uh, open it up to the whole floor if anyone has any questions for our panel. Yeah, please, in the back. Just say your name and speak as loud as you can. <laughs> Jordan is my name. And Jordan. I was actually going to ask about Hellblade. Um, for, every, for all three of you, um, there's uh, this quote by Dante, I guess, or through Dante, of games can tear you apart, but they can't uh, put you back together or something like that. Um, if, if, if it's like the uh, accolades trailer or whatnot of Hellblade is to be believed and all these people like wrote in talking about like how it helped them reconcile with their family members and friends who were struggling with dementia and uh, paranoid schizophrenia and all of the issues that sort of addressed the Hellblade. Um, if that's all legitimate, like is, is that, I mean, would you still like hold to that idea that like video games can't heal? I mean, I, I feel like if, 
if you if you are a romantic, then you might want to like you know extrapolate to 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 the possibilities of like well no maybe video games really can like do this special extra thing. Um, I I'm coming from the standpoint of I'm trying to use it as um, research for mental frameworks, not like heavy research, but just like as a project academic project. Um, and I kind of want to validate it to my professor. Um, <laughs> I have a stake in this, but. Um, yeah, what do, you, what do you have to say about games like that? What, what, they, what they call themselves a, a double-A title, where they weren't particularly committed to the, uh, the economic. Um, I, I would definitely say that, oh wow, I'm getting echo. Sorry. <laughs> I wasn't used to that. It's okay, it's okay. Um, um, I, I think that, um, I think that when 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 it, uh, when we talk about like games and like their ability to do special things, uh, I think my only real problem with that viewpoint is that it's very easy to fall into saying that games are going to fix everything. And I think we saw that. Um, I mean, Adrian, I know you you're probably familiar with this, but like uh, kind of the late uh, late. 2000 aughts where everyone was talking about ludology and narratology and everyone was trying to say like games are really cool and they're going to save the world and like and I appreciate that viewpoint I don't know if I hold it not because I want to not believe it but because I don't know if it really holds up I think that I think that games can teach I think that games can offer things but when we're talking about a game I mean, it's obviously subjective. Like if someone plays Hellblade and they're like, wow, this really changed my life and it really like made me understand something, then that's totally valid. But like, um, I guess my only, my only point with that is saying that like, we shouldn't assume that just by hitting all the right notes with a game or whatever, we're gonna be creating a, a, a system of social change, right? Um, and I've heard a lot of people who really liked Hellblade. I've also heard a lot of people who are very critical of Hellblade because of the ways that uh, it kind of, uh, it, it portrayed mental illnesses and I didn't play it. I, I can't speak firsthand, but I, I, I think that there's a lot of talk in games that is really trying to make games legitimate, right? Everyone's always like, we have to, if we, if we show that games did something, then they're legitimate. And I'm kind of frustrated with that viewpoint. Like it's no one's fault. It's like, this is, this is how academia works is that we always have to prove something is important. Um, I just get, I, I feel like that's, we don't have to do that with other forms of media. <laughs> and I don't think we have to do that with games. Like, I think that games are, are plenty interesting without it. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. That, that's, that's all I can say about it. Sorry if that was kind of rambling. <laughs> no, that was great. Um, any other thoughts? Other yeah, I mean, sort of related to that, um, I mean, I think it's, I think games, thinks that they're the only ones who have to do that. But we also saw that uh, with film and, and television studies when, when they were first founded, people also made a lot of claims of what, what they can do. Uh, and I think that part of that comes from a like defending, defending academic turf to a certain degree. But also, I mean, coming, coming at this as a media studies scholar, we know and have known for as long as games have existed uh, in media studies, that audiences do a lot of different things with texts, right? Any single text can produce a lot of different outcomes, a lot of different understandings. Um, 
some people can play a game and see one thing, some people can play a game and see another thing. And I think game studies as a whole hasn't done a great job of embracing that. I mean, I actually, I've been working on a piece recently. I don't think game studies as a whole has actually really embraced media studies. There, I, I dug through the literature and the people who do qualitative game studies work, there are four of us that cite communication scholars and two of them don't actually cite audience studies. Um, nobody cites audience studies uh, except for me and Amanda Cody. Um, and I think that a lot of that come out of that games are special and games are different rhetoric. Like we have to find new tools to study them um, so we can have conferences and grants that give us money and keep, keep us employed. Whereas I think that there's a lot of overlap between what games can do and what games can't do and what media does, what storytelling does. I think. Uh, more like the ludology narratology debate long over and dead until it's not um like is regardless of that debate we can still talk about these as things that tell stories and what and some and stories can do different things for different audiences in different ways and i think that that is one of the things that's really powerful about them they can do things stories can do things um but that doesn't mean that they can do them for everybody Right. Any given story has different effects with different audiences. Yeah, for sure. Um, oh, yeah. Off, of, off of that, so in, in game development, what we often talk about, we actually have two different types of story. We have the basically curated narrative experience that is cinematics, VO, things like that. There's also the player story. So what is the, what is the actual experience uh, like what, ha what happens to me as I play the game? What stories am I creating as I play the game? Um, the best example I can think of that uh, from my own personal, not counting multiplayer games because that is nearly 100% just player experience. But in Fallout 3, um, if you play evil, you can actually enslave people. And uh, there's a side quest where you come to a town of, of, of slaves who have escaped. And there's a slaver outside their camp who says, we're going, to, we're going to try to recapture these people and we need your help. And you can say yes or no, or you can kill the guy, you know, it's up to you. If you say yes, he says, okay, meet me at, meet me at the camp. And to me, this is one of the greatest strokes of genius in, in level design. Their camp is at the foot of the Lincoln Monument. So you literally have to go to the Lincoln Memorial and stand, and Abe Lincoln's head has been removed by them, of course, but you literally have to stand there with that staring you in the face and then agree to do this quest. And I was like, no, nah, I'm out, and I killed all of them. <laughs> so I think there's... <laughs> um, so so I, think, I think when we talk about stories, it, there's, there's the curated narrative experience, but also just as important to that is what is the player story? What do I experience as I move to this game space? What am I, you know... Dante and I might be playing the same game, but we, but based on how we play the game, we'll have different experiences. Like in the case of, say, Mafia 3, maybe he follows all the traffic rules. I don't. I plow through everybody. So just even a, even a very low-level game system like that, you can have that, that, that differentiation, which I also think kind of expands um, kind of what, the, what the, the, the story of the game could be. And... I don't know if I totally disagree that games aren't unique, but I will say that that part of the of games does make them unique, is that when you're playing the game, you're both playing a character, but you're also playing yourself, which I do think is unique to the medium. 
Absolutely, and I think that that's like the one thing I always try to get my students to about like what is different about games, and it is that like it it feels trite to say at this point, but it is that they're interactive, right? And interactive in a way that can fundamentally change. You're breaking up a little bit, Adrian. Sorry. Sorry. Can you just? Uh, but they're fundamentally. You can be. They're interactive in a way that can fundamentally change what the story is, and that that changes what the meaning making process is. Right. That's that is ra radically different about games. And I think I feel like game studies tried too hard to define its object of study without just focusing on that experience as being like, this is what's important about them. Right. And that that's why it matters because it's a cultural text that can have a lot of different meanings come out of it. Great, thanks. Um, I think we have time for at least one more question. Terrell, yeah, please. Thank you all, this has been great. Um, I have a question that's um, somewhat inspired by the uh, most, I mean it's not the most recent, but it's a fairly recent episode of the Waypoint podcast where they're thinking about a frequent discrepancy between a way that a game is marketed and the sort of actual content of the game. And particularly this comes up when there's a particular political issue that a game is trying to tackle or is at least advertised to tackle um, in a number of different instances. And especially when that topic is big in the sort of mainstream discourse, mainstream opinion. Um, and I guess I find myself kind of caught in between two places with it. Um, in one sense, I think when, especially when you're captured by what's offered by uh, the marketing of the game and you think there's a really enticing opportunity for a game to actually make a statement about a topic of contemporary relevance, you feel a little cheated when that doesn't come to fruition. Then there's a sort of other side of it where, hmm, you know, there's a lot of ways that this could go very, very wrong. And so the, the option to choose, you know, as Bill put it, nah, I'm out, <laughs> kind of steer the sort of straight in the middle or um, maybe even intentionally dampen down some of the more political representations or political commentary within a game is actually kind of playing it safe on both sides. Um, and I'm wondering, in terms of being caught between a rock and a hard place on my question, um, if you all are similarly in that position, or do you have a harder sort of stake in either direction? Um, I can answer this, I suppose. Uh, first off, shouts to the Waypoint crew, the good people, <laughs> love them, love that podcast, I listen to that podcast. Um, but. Uh, when I was when I was listening to that, I definitely thought um, that I, I I'm kind of also with you, where like I don't know if like games should just go for it and mangle it, or or if or if this is the way that we do it. Personally, personally, I think uh, that there is there is actually a right way to do this, which is just you hire the people who know what the fuck they're talking about, and you you hire someone. If you're gonna make a game about racism, you hire black people. If you're gonna make a game about colonialism, you know you you, you hire people who are from like a historically colonized people. Like these are not these are not difficult things. <laughs> like they're yeah. just yeah. they're just not done, <laughs> and that's that's what's ultimately so frustrating. It's like I would have like they talked about on that podcast um, the Dead Island trailer, which is kind of a different thing, right? Dead Island the Dead Island trailer from 2011 was the one that was like really emotional and it had this story of a girl who's dying and she's on an island, it's a resort island. And the game, if you ever played Dead Island, was also like kind of a goofy hack em up with zombies. Um, and I feel like that's sort of the, that's the other thing, that's just a tonal difference. And I feel like that's like, 
That's whatever. It's not great, but it's, I, I don't care. That's fine. It was just a goofy video game that was marketed weirdly. But yeah, my bigger problem is when you have games like like your Far Cries or your Bioshocks or your games that are like really trying to like make a statement and then they don't. <laughs> like, and yeah, I mean, I maybe my answer is too simplistic, but for me, it's always like, well, yeah, if you want to make a game about racism, don't have it be written by just white people. Like, it's not that hard. <laughs> like, um, yeah, that's, that's my stance. <laughs> Great. Other thoughts? Okay. Well, um, oh, sorry, oh, sorry. Sorry. I was, I was, I was unmuting. Um, <laughs> it, it, it is interesting, the tension between just, I, I haven't listened to that particular podcast, but based on the question that there is the interesting friction between how you market a commercial product and how the marketing of that relates to the actual product that's, of its, you know, that, that you're trying to sell. Um, in a case, I'm not going to speak of other games, but in case of, of Mafia 3, we were, especially me as the, as the lead writer, I was adamant that at its core, this is a revenge story. Um, all of the other aspects of the game in terms of who Lincoln is as a person, this, the, the year, the city, all those other things, they definitely played huge parts of that. But I think if you look at the marketing of Mafia 3, it was marketed as a revenge story. But if you kind of read between the lines, the marketing prominently featured an African-American man, for, to be totally blunt about it, killing white people who had, who had wronged him. So I, I, I think it's very difficult um, sometimes to kind of separate those two. Um, but like Dante said, the, the, for me, just speaking as somebody who's in the industry, to me, the thing I always look for in marketing, and this is a, you know maybe an unrelated tangent, is tonal consistency. So the tone of the Mafia 3 trailers and the commercials we ran on TV are consistent with the tone of the game. The Dead Island trailer, which is amazing because especially since it plays in reverse, is very emotional and everything else. But the tone of the game is, and I love Dead Island. I mean, who doesn't love running around hacking up zombies? But I love it. But tonally, it is not consistent with that at all. And I think that's where that big disconnect can come in between how a game is, the, the actual experience of playing the game versus its marketing is ensuring that tonal consistency across. Because I think in a lot of ways, that's the kind of connective tissue that kind of signals to somebody, hey, I may or may not be interested in this. Bill, a quick... Oh, sorry, Adrian, go ahead, please. No, go ahead for the follow-up. Yeah, just a quick follow-up for Bill. Um, the part of that conversation on that podcast was also the fact, the, a, a, a question of to what extent do game developers like yourself have a say in that marketing material in creating that tonal consistency, which I think we would all agree sort of is important uh, at a sort of aesthetic level or like getting the message across correctly. But to what extent do game developers actually have a chance to influence that marketing? Um, it depends. It, it totally, de it's, it's completely dependent on where you're working. So in the case of Mafia 3, we as a studio actually had a high degree of, of say in terms of how the game was marketed. Um, ultimately, it wasn't like our final decision, but we were shown all the assets as they were being created. Um, you know, Ice Cube recorded a song for us. So like two people from the studio actually went down and showed him the game. Him and his son played the game. Um, and then off of that, you know, he worked on the song. I've also worked at places where there is zero involvement. Mm -hmm. There's there's just stuff. Oh, hey, there's a trailer for a game. Oh, you know, I'm not going to say the game, but, you know, because I don't want to sound disparaging. But my mom sent me an email saying, hey, I saw the commercial for your game during the NBA finals. And I was like, oh, I didn't even know that was happening. <laughs> so <laughs> um, 
So it, 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 it totally is very, very dependent on the company that you work for. Some, some are much more open and willing to involve the developer and other people say, hey, we have, we have discipline experts in terms of marketing and sales and we're just gonna let them do what they do and, you know, and we're just gonna roll with that. Great, thanks. Yeah, I was gonna say, uh, related to the comment Bill made about um, the effect the marketing can have on who, think, who thinks uh, the game is for them. I think one of the best classic like, examples of this is the early Tomb Raider games. Like, that game had so much potential to appeal to a wide variety of audiences. There was a, like, minus the, the, the visual design, there's actually a lot more badass thought that went into who Lara Croft could be as a character. But it went into the marketing office and it became boobs, right? Like, that was the character after that. And a lot of that had to do with how the game was pitched and what audience they thought it was for. And I feel like that also affected historically what people thought that character was. Um, and I think has has affected who felt like the game industry was for them. Like it's not all on, on that game, but a lot of it comes from that. Um, to the bigger question of that we started with though, like is it better for games to fail or not go there at all? Um, I think coming from like sort of more of a philosophical per perspective, I think good representation necessarily fails, right? Because it doesn't try to account for everything. It doesn't try to say like, this is the final way to represent this or this conflict. It sort of recognizes that it's telling a story from a perspective, right? And I think that that is something that we could embrace a little bit better. Like I would rather games try to deal with challenging content and think about what that means for them as, as developers, as, as writers, et cetera, than to just say, it's too hard, we're not gonna deal with it. I think a lot of historical lack of representation comes from a place of, it's too hard, so we're not gonna bother. Um, and I don't think that that, so if representational is a good way to imagine what types of being in the world are possible, then we have to just have much more diversity in what the representation entails. And if that entails screwing up sometimes, then maybe that's worth it. I say, not having invested billions of dollars and not having to worry about <laughs> returns to investors. Right. right? Yeah. Well, it's great about my job. I could just say things and then not have to worry about um, stockholders. Bottom lines, <laughs> yeah. Maybe just one more question from the audience, if anyone has any. Or maybe, yeah, uh, Mark, please. Hi, my name's Mark. Um, I'm coming from the literary criticism, literary theory side, and teaching some video games the first time this semester. And uh, thinking about the comments many of you made about uh, how there's an overemphasis on the, uh, what is distinctive to games, um, and maybe this is just so obvious that it, that it wasn't necessary to say, but isn't it the case that uh, the navigation of space, the creation of space in a digital environment that can be navigated is pretty much unique to video games, and that's one of the things you exploit as a designer and also requires different modes of environmental spatial storytelling? Well, I think that's true depending on what your definition of a game is, right? Like there are games that are text-based. There are games that are point-and-click-based, which is less about navigating space. So I think that some of the, the pushback I personally feel for what's unique about games is that once we start trying to define like this is what a game is, we leave out a lot of those interesting things that are not that. And I think that especially a lot of indie games lately would be left out of the spatial navigation question. 
Um, I would also say that I mostly agree. I'm a, I mean, like, I, I agree. With, I agree with Adrian. I also agree with the with the idea that games do really cool stuff with space. I think it is one of the things games are good at. But I would also agree that saying like there are other things. And when we talk about like moving through spaces, uh, this has like been like a reason thing. But I have a friend who's like really into um, uh, interactive theater and like escape rooms and stuff. And those are doing effectively kind of the same stuff that we're talking about when we talk about cool explorations of space. And again, none of this is to say that games are worse or better at it. It's just, they're really broad. And that is the problem, is that you can't really pin it down. Like, I don't know, what's a game? <laughs> don't ask me. <laughs> um, uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm a huge proponent of kind of like using the lens of space to look at games. I love like architectural studies in, 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 uh, in games, you know, like that's really cool, but I agree with Adrian that like it's not it's not all there is, um, and I think it's important to keep in mind that it's not all there is. Just to push back a little bit though, a parser game, say like Wizard Sniffer, <laughs> um, you're still exploring space and you're choosing to go some places rather than another in a way you can't when you're in a novelistic space or something like that. Um, but I agree, it's not the only thing. But nonetheless, some of the things you're commenting on still follow that rubric of the ability to navigate digital space. Uh, I'll, I'll say, I, I, I do agree with, um, with Adrian about, it, about the, uh, you need to appreciate the full spectrum of what entails a game. You know, there's text games, there's, there's AAA games, there's everything in between. I will say that as a storyteller making AAA games, environmental storytelling is hugely important to us. Um, we put, I, I, this is something every place I've ever worked, I try to emphasize this, that everything you do should relate to, if, if, if you're going this way, if you're gonna say, hey, we're gonna have a 3D game in a 3D space, and we're gonna try to tell a curated narrative experience, that everything the player does needs to reinforce that. It needs to either re reinforce it tonally, it needs to augment it some way, or it needs to sell the world. So like in the case of Mafia 3, we did a lot of research in terms of um, some specific mission locations. Like there's a uh, abandoned amusement park called Baron Saturdays, which is super racist and a horrible place and going through there and shooting everybody's a lot of fun. Um, but <laughs> that's based on a historical place. And just, just moving through that space and seeing the kind of attitude of society as represented by that, by that abandoned amusement park, I think can sell that more than a conversation between two characters. If you have two characters going, hey, this place is really racist, that is not as powerful as actually experiencing that and walking through it and hearing the, you know, there's a prospector who's voiced by Nolan North, um, you know, basically welcoming you to the park. And then it ends with you walking through a ride and hearing this horrible story. And the fact that you can experience that is, is like, you know, it's, it's, it's storytelling 101, it's show, don't tell. And by showing that, and by, by bringing in the designers and building that into a cohesive experience, I think if that's your goal, again, if that's the kind of game you want to make, that really adds a lot to the experience. All right, thank you, Bill. Um, and thanks to all of our panelists. I think we give them one last uh, round. We really appreciate you taking time uh, to come speak with us. Uh, is there, if you want to shout out places where people could find your work real quick, if uh, anywhere online? 
Uh, yeah, I'm, like I mentioned, uh, I'm on Twitter as at Video Dante. Um, it's if I do anything, I'll post it there. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, yeah, that's nice. Yeah, uh, on Twitter, Adri Shaw um, is the best place to find me. Uh, I also have a website, just adrianshaw.com. And if you're interested in the LGBTQ Game Archive, it's lgbtqgamearchive.com. We're also on Twitter and the Facebook. Um, more updates as my semester ends and I have time to make them. <laughs> right. uh, I'm on Twitter, I'm WJ Harms. Usually I'm trolling Trump um, or... <laughs> Or posting rants about football. So um, I'm also on the web at williamharms.com. Yeah, I saw some cat pictures up there too. So just in case. I, 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 yeah, I, I do post pictures of our cat Sam. So okay. good. good content. All right, thanks again. Thanks. Yes, thanks.